you want to hear my idea? Go on then. It turns out that people don't like journalists. Um, so I trained some journalists to do stand-up comedy because people love comedy. Am I right? Yeah. So my idea is to train James Meadway to do comedy, uh, not least because that would make these podcasts uh, go fly along quicker. No. <laughs> weeks and weeks of being insulted by you, so it's, it's, it's you know, it's back to where we started with. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism, Episode 7. It's been four long years since me and James Meadway told the story of neoliberalism, from Hayek to Thatcher to the end of history. But now, we're getting the band back together, as popularly requested on Twitter. It's 2019, the world is on fire, and it's time to change the rules. Previously on the Weekly Economics Podcast... Okay, so in spite of the crash, neoliberalism sounds like it's just lumbering on happily. In terms of economic ideas, James, is this it? Well, the neoliberals would would like to think that this is it, that there is no other uh, alternative, as uh, Thatcher famously uh, said herself. There's even an argument from Francis Fukuyama back in 1989 that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of communism, this was the end of history. There'll be no other uh, competing ideologies against neoliberal capitalism out there, and this really would be it for humanity from here on in. Now, it's fairly safe to say that actually history has not uh, in any sense uh, ended by this point. That is immoral, that is wrong. I can tell you the cost of pursuing a Green New Deal will be far less than the cost of not passing it. We gotta rewrite the rules in this economy. The collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. I'm bringing you this episode from beautiful Liverpool. More parks than Paris is what, what they tell me here. Uh, and joining me on the line from London, which sounds dead proper, doesn't it? I'm reunited at last with James Meadway. Why don't you call me? <laughs> how have you been? <laughs> how have you been keeping yourself uh, I've been busy? I've keeping myself these... very well. I didn't know you wanted me to call you. It's all very sad. <laughs> we kind of went our separate ways and then never spoke again. It's uh, not even about neoliberalism or economics or any of these other interesting things. Uh, anyway, <laughs> how have you been keeping yourself then, James? Tell us what you've been up to. Um, well, uh, so so shortly after recording the last episode of, of uh, The Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism, I, uh, I got asked to go and work for John McDonnell, who, who to, to, well, his surprise and everybody's, um, ended up being Shadow Chancellor with Jeremy Corbyn, elected leader of the Labour Party. So I've been doing that for the last three and a half years or so, but currently taking a break to write a book about about, well, how to do economics better than it's being done by this government and, and lots of other people around the world. How to do economics without neoliberalism and better than this. Wow. How do you start a book? I, I, that's a very good question. <laughs> and by this point in the writing stage, I really ought to know. 
<laughs> Ask me how I've been. Oh, God, all right, okay. How have you been? I've been very well, thank you. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> um, and also joining us, I'm sorry about all this fawning, is, uh, is Miata Fambula, who is the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation. Hello, Miata. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us this evening. So let's start with a quick recap for those who are not uh, neoliberal nerds, who have not been um, uh, listening to the uh, previous episodes, which you can listen to if you haven't already. James, in case people have forgotten, what do we mean by neoliberalism? Okay, um... Well, what we said before, and I think it still works, is that this is the rules of the game uh, of capitalism. That You can sort of play the game differently if you want, but the rules that we're currently playing under are basically neoliberal. And they talk about the necessity of competition, of having markets as the best way of organising society, of distributing what society produces, whether that's goods or services or whatever it might be, of um, taking things out of the hands of the public sector or other forms of, of sort of common or collective ownership and putting them into the private sector and saying that the people in the private sector, firms, corporations, whoever it might be, know best about how to use the assets and the wealth of society. So they should be allowed to keep as much as they can. So part of it is also, of course, you know, cutting taxes as low as possible, particularly on the rich, uh, and keeping government out of the economy because uh, the private sector and the market between them always know best. And that really is, is the rules of the game that we've had for a very long period of time in this country and across the world. Uh, and what we tried to talk about in the series before was why we ended up with these rules and, and what we might do if we try to think about how we could change them and what rules we might want instead. Okay, so that was simple. Nice. Um, so weekly economics podcast nerds will know that when we recorded episode six of this mini series way back in 2015, um, I'd just been on a date with a cartoonist, I think, and it was some kind of inflatable kayak incident, but we won't revisit that. Uh, Hillary Clinton had just declared her candidacy for presidency. David Cameron, remember him, had just formed a majority government and the contest to replace Ed Miliband as leader of the Labour Party was just about to begin. Since then, there's been a series of huge political changes. You don't need to tell me about the. Uh, I don't, you don't need me to tell you about the election of one Donald Trump, of course, but also big political upheavals across Europe and Latin America. And here in the UK, we've had the Brexit vote, uh, a new prime minister, a new leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, and even uh, new political parties. Oh, and Tommy Robinson got a milkshake thrown on him uh, in uh, my hometown of Warrington just recently. So. Uh, first of all, James, uh, I guess we'll, co we'll come back to you. So what's the story here? How did we get from the neoliberal consensus in 2015 to here? Well, that, that's, uh, yeah, no, when you put it like that, the <laughs> four years have been quite dramatic one way or the other, uh, and looking back in it, and, and it feels like immense distance has been travelled since then. Um, the the bit that did the most here, the bit that really shifted things, to be blunt, was um, Jeremy Corbyn's election of Labour leader, um, defying the, the entirety of the sort of consensus in the middle of British politics, that it just wasn't possible to have somebody who said, well, we, we don't want to do neoliberalism, we don't want to impose austerity. Um, it, defying the consensus, it'd be possible for anyone like this to, to lead uh, a major party like the Labour Party. And then in 2017, defying the consensus, it was possible to present a manifesto that broadly speaking said, we don't want neoliberalism, we want to end austerity. And to have that uh, deliver, what, the biggest increase in Labour's vote share since 1945. So that, I think, 
think has been the biggest single shift. But what it's opened up has been a, a much wider conversation uh, right the way across British society, at least, about what we might be doing instead and about how things might be different. You can see uh, the work of think tanks like the New Economics Foundation, like others that are out there, the way in which it's contributing to that far more involved discussion, which instead of saying, look, there is one answer and it is the market and everything has to look a bit like this, you start to think about, well, actually, we could do things a bit differently. We can start to think about how we might care for society, how we might care for people in society, what an economy might look like that isn't just driven and determined by, by the profit motive. So all of this has been cracked wide open, I think, in the last, last four years here, uh, for good or for ill. And, you know, not all the answers people come to are necessarily good or desirable ones. You, you mentioned Tommy Robinson. This is an undesirable uh, answer in the extreme, but there are other versions of that. So, uh, so I think there's a, there's a challenge about what we do next and what life after neoliberalism looks like. And that's one of the things I think Neff and others are trying to, trying to grapple with. Yeah, and I think the thing I would add is it was the context that allowed Jeremy to do what he did that I think is really interesting. So we had the global financial crisis. If ever there was a moment where the shortcomings of neoliberalism was exposed for all, that was it. Um, But strangely, there wasn't a big revolution. There wasn't a big shift after that. And what you then had is pretty much, you know, a long period of pain. Um, So for me, the most telling part was Part of the kind of neoliberal deal was, you know, you let the markets run, uh, you have faith in them, and they will grow the economy, and everyone will do incrementally better off. And that stopped happening. That stopped working. So the economy grew, uh, but for the majority of people, they didn't see the benefit of it. Uh, We had this really strange situation where actually wages were pretty much stagnant, still are. Um, We've had this for 10 years. And so I think up and down the country, people started to say, hmm, this doesn't feel right. Uh, that you know, we were willing to suck up this way uh, of running the economy as long as we were doing okay, um, and as long as our kids were doing okay, and that's no longer happening. So I think there was a, I think the conditions um, that in some respects were the kind of consequences of the financial crisis. Um, it just took a little while for it to kind of bite. You overlay that with austerity. Uh, so at the very time when loads of people needed lots of help, a government that was trying to pursue an agenda of shrinking the state again part of the kind of neoliberal ethos, took away the kind of social infrastructure, the services that people need. And so I think there was a genuine questioning that created the conditions that allowed Jeremy Corbyn to start questioning and challenging it. Mm. And how much of this this do you think is, is, a, is a, I guess, a conscious backlash against neoliberalism? Do you think that, that people are thinking in, in all those terms or is it, you know, other factors? Well, I think, uh, look, I, I don't know how many... Actually, that's one of the things that's happened in the in the last four years or so, that neoliberalism has become a term of abuse, that, that, that this gets, like, uh, sort of random people on Twitter, like, hurling it about the place, to the point there's a there's a subset of sort of centrist ads out there denying it even exists. But the, the point at which you, you've, we've, we now have a kind of popular understanding of neoliberalism as a bad thing, and I think attached to that, an understanding of what that bad thing might be, uh, I think is a, a sign of real progress. Um, whether if you go outside of, you know, Twitter rows or, or what the left is talking about or whatever, how far people define the problem that they see in society as neoliberalism, I, I wouldn't know. And I don't think it's, it's a word that's necessarily on everyone's lips, not least because it's really quite hard to say. Um, <laughs> but it, remember that from yeah, the last oh, episode. We really need something else, but you know, here we are. Um, so I don't think people necessarily use that word, but I think a lot of people would define society in which a very few people at the top are doing very well indeed. You know, this is the 1% or the 0.1% really, uh, who, who are doing incredibly well and everybody else is 
season and by the way it's slowly destroying the environment that we live in and mm. by the way public services are falling apart and you can continue uh, the list I think people can see that quite obviously and start to name at least part of what the problem is and, and that's the exciting thing yeah, one of, the, one of the interesting things, I guess, is that kind of Trump and uh, people like Tommy Robinson have come alongside someone someone like Corbyn. Um, do you think we we can define Trump as neoliberal? Miata. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, so th- this is where he is fascinating. Um, and he's fascinating because uh, he is kind of anchoring himself in the thing that we're seeing here as well. You know, people's sense of frustration, their anger with the fact that the economy is not working. So people don't talk about neoliberalism, but they do talk about the fact that the economy feels like it's broken. They do talk about the fact that it, the system feels rigged. Um, it feels like it's on the side of a few people and not the majority of people. And he has managed to kind of locate himself within that, but strangely pushes out neoliberal policies, but in a way that sounds very populist. Um, and I think the danger in that is actually the things that he pushes out aren't really solutions to the big problems that people face. Do you feel like Brexit fits into that um, that kind of vibe, James? Well, some of it, yes. I, I think that there's there's kind of two Brexits going on. One is is this sort of absolutely by this point tedious, never ending sort of Westminster round of kind of small detailed politicking that, that has been consuming all of, of political argument. Not in two Brexits, James. Yeah, well, there is, there is. I think there is, right? There's that Brexit. That's the one that, oh, that gets hell. all the commands. I know, I know, I know. But as long as it sticks to two, I think we can just about bear it. But there's there's that Brexit, and then there's a sort of other Brexit, which is this 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 expression of, of discontent and and a, and a wish for something to be different, and and, and not necessarily always saying what that difference might be or how you might want that difference to, to, to sort of change society. But I think that was there. And you can see it quite clearly, at least a chunk of the reason that people voted for leave. Not all of it. You know, you can argue backwards and forwards about what was going on there. But at least a chunk of it is exactly that vote where it's like, hang on, for a very long period of time, uh, this is a, a system, society and an economy that's not worked particularly well uh, for a whole bunch of people. And this is a golden opportunity to send a very, very clear signal that this needs to change. So, so that's kind of the other Brexit there. Uh, And I think if we want to provide answers to that, I think I agree completely with Miata that that we absolutely have to. It's no good sort of pretending that this argument uh, about society and and about how we might make big changes to society isn't there, that we can just sort of carry on fiddling around the edges and tweaking things a little bit and maybe people will be content with whatever small sort of fiddly policy detail change that that we might want to introduce. That isn't going to happen. We have to have big picture answers to sort of big picture problems that people feel. Because if we don't, somebody else turns up with them. Donald Trump turns up with big picture answers to what he presents is a big picture problem. Too many immigrants build a wall, right? It's that kind of level of, of, of and that is a policy. No, it's not one that he's, he's currently, thank God, able to, to implement particularly well. And strikingly with Trump, you know, where he did posture as being sort of anti-neoliberal in 2016, hey, I'm going to like maybe increase taxes on the rich. He's done exactly the opposite domestically. Um, where he hasn't been neoliberal in that sense, and, and this is a much bigger process that I think we're all up against, is, is the way in which he's ripped up a lot of the rules, the neoliberal rules for how the internationally economy is supposed to work. So going straight out and saying, you know, let's have a trade war with China. I mean, that is not in the neoliberal playbook. This is not something you're supposed to be doing. It's quite an, an assertive, aggressive, economic nationalist thing that he's, he's started to do there. So stack up a lot of these things and, and the world can look quite quite alarming, to, to say the least. And that's why it's so essential. It's not just the, the happy clappy, isn't it nice if we all think of nice things to do instead. It's like, we have to do this. If we don't do this, the solutions that will get imposed on us will look extremely uh, unpleasant from our point 
point of view. You know, you can see already uh, climate change isn't necessarily going to play out as something that works to the benefit of, the, of people who are progressive and socialists and liberals and, mm -hmm. you know, all that, that sort of end of the political spectrum. It could work out very, very differently. It could work out as building more walls. It could, could, could work out as pulling up the drawbridge and uh, it could work out as, you know, geoengineering. There's, there's any number of possibilities that come out of this that are the exact opposite progressive. So we have to be there and we have to try and make the case for something better and something different that benefits the great majority of people. And how do you think uh, Theresa May's government finally is kind of, uh, as we bring ourselves right up to date, is, fits into this neoliberal kind of story and, and I guess weathers this kind of storm post-Brexit, post-Theresa May? So, so the, I think the, the, the interesting thing about uh, Theresa May is that you know, she stood on a platform where she conceded the economy was broken. Um, and actually, she, she stood on a platform where she was sort of trying to shift the narrative and the framing of the Conservative Party, I'd argue, to the left or closer to Labour. And, you know, everyone remembers that, you know, speech on Downing Street, where she was talking about, you know, uh, families that were squeezed. She was talking about, you know, not allowing uh, markets to run riots. She was talking about kind of protecting communities. Um, all stuff that actually, you know, was a departure um, from the traditional kind of neoliberal mantra that you would have got from Thatcher. Um, and I think the thing that is hugely disappointing is uh, her government has been really buffeted. Uh, so you, you, you look back and say, what have you done? You know, just let's list those things that you talked about. Which one of those have you made progress on? Um, and I think the answer is very little. Um, and then you throw Brexit on that, on top of that. And, you know, for me, I completely agree with James. That vote, whether, you know, it was about lots of things, but loud and clear, it was a vote for change. It was people saying we're sick and tired of the status quo. We want something better than the settlement. And the fact that our politicians and this government has spent three years talking about nothing more other than the technicalities of Brexit and not dealing with the underlying issues, I think is a huge indictment. And I think the political backlash, and it won't just come, I think the political backlash won't just come to the government, I think it's across the political elite, is going to be absolutely phenomenal. So they talk the game of shifting, but have just done more of the same, but worse than that, have done very little, which for me is worse than doing more of the same. What about government spending? What about government spending? Anti-austerity. Austerity is a weird one. Like, Theresa May does keep insisting that austerity is over, and then, then her, her, her chancellor um, has to sort of turn around and say, actually, we, we're, we're sort of going to carry on with this. I mean, she's done it three, four times off the top of my head in the last few years. So the argument for austerity that was like all-encompassing um, by, well, by the 2010 election and thereafter, I think it's just drained away in terms of any popular support. People can see the impact of it. You just walk outside the, the offices where we are in London, you can see very graphically and clearly the kind of impact it's had. So the arguments drained away but the kind of the monster rumbles on For the rest of this episode, um, we're going to pick up from where we left off um, in episode six, looking at the latest thinking about how the rules of the game of capitalism could be changed for the better. But before we do that, uh, people have tried and failed to undo the worst bits of neoliberalism in the past. What, James, do you think would need to happen for change to be more successful this time? 
Oh, blimey, that, that is a, that is a huge, this is why I should have no looked biggie. at the instructions that our producer helpfully sent around um, b- before the episode, so I knew roughly that you might be asking that kind of thing. That is a, that is a huge question. Um, I think one part of it is is a process of, of something like political education. The, the, this, that sounds a bit, oh, sounds a bit sort of pat, but I think that to the extent that we have more people who are both informed and have a sense of what needs to change and how those, how you start to get change and how you win change, I think that's probably the most critically uh, useful thing that we can do. So in other words, that we don't just talk about neoliberalism because, hey, this is a, an interesting academic debate and we can you know, stroke our chins and, and pontificate about the state of the world. You do this because hopefully you learn something and then you think about what you might want to do to change it. Now, if we have a large number of people who can think like that, that is the most important single ingredient to winning a- any kind of progressive, useful change ever because that starts to give you uh, the group of people who can win the arguments elsewhere, whether it's part of a big movement like Extinction rebellion has blown up to be, or the school student strikes against climate change, that if you have that set of informed people who can name their enemy and can kind of tell you what's going on and can explain what the solutions might be, that is the most important single thing. And, and we don't know when the next election would be, which is going to be an obvious sort of potential turning point in all of this. Um, legally, it has to be before 2022, the way that this government is displaying every sign of clinging on uh, for as long as humanly possible. It may well be 2022, but we don't have very much time to try and assemble that group of people who can think like that. So I think that that is what you need. The challenges, the next challenges we face, the most obvious one is around climate change. And what is the uh, what is the response to that that's to the benefit of society and benefit of most people that doesn't involve, as it might do, you know, massive racism and the reinforcement of that, or massively uh, the wealthy pulling up drawbridges and helping themselves whatever's left, that sort of thing. That, that's where I, I think we need to get into. And I'm very pleased to see that you know Labour certainly and, and some of the other parties are also trying to think about what they do in this space and, and how they offer good, progressive, solid, meaningful solutions to the problems that climate change is now going to cause us. Can you tell us some more, Miata, about the uh, the Green New Deal, some of the more specifics of, uh, you know, the practicalities, obviously there's the ideas and the movement, but then um, we'll look around and go, okay, what are we going to actually do? <laughs> so, I mean, I think the Green New Deal is really interesting because what it does is the, you know, in a way that organisations like ourselves have always argued, the environmental justice agenda is not distinct from the social justice agenda. They're fundamentally in- uh, interlinked. So what the Green New Deal says is actually we're going to look to green our economy because we absolutely need to do that and by the way we need to do it really quickly so we can't wait for 20 30 years we've got to do this really urgently but we've got to do it in a way that works for people and works for communities so we've got to think about actually the jobs that come out of this um, and not just you know rubbish jobs but really good jobs we've got to think about the way in which we do this in a way that lifts people up and lifts living, living standards up we've also got to do it in a way that actually transfers ownership so that when we're investing in green infrastructure and technology it's owned by us, by everyday people. It's not just owned by a few. So I think with the Green New Deal, it creates an agenda whereby we say we've got this imperative to try to fundamentally change the way our economy works from an environmental perspective, but we do it with people at the heart and people in mind. Um, and then you get into the nitty gritty of, well, okay, what does that mean for the kind of technology? What does that, how do you pay for it? But for me, that it's the principle of trying to align those two objectives that's the most powerful. How much do you think um, we need to like think and talk about how our lives might change? I just end up sitting, you know, in those gross food markets where you can just get absolutely anything you want, halloumi fries all day long. Uh, and I just wonder, you know, will our lives change? How And how prepared do we need to be for that? And, and, and do we need to start talking about that? Well, I think, I mean, on that one, it's 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 a huge question and it can get presented um 
I think incorrectly is like this is just you know hair shirts for everyone and life is going to be miserable, uh, which which is completely the wrong way to think about it. I mean, bluntly, I don't think you can say to a whole bunch of people, and, and what we have in this country is a whole bunch of people like the majority of people who, who are in work who spent ten years seeing themselves gradually getting worse and worse off, and and as Miata said, the the expectation is their children will be in, in a worse position than them. You can't turn around and say, hey, guess what? Uh, climate change is happening, so you know you have to be made even poorer still. This is exactly, I mean, the approach uh, of Macron in in France on this question of like we're just going to impoverish you more that's what this means it's all miserable it's like well forget that uh, that's not how we're going to do this but can we offer a positive vision of a sort of more environmentally sustainable society that is fairer, that is better, and is actually better for you on a fairly personal day-to-day basis. And I think, yes, we can. That's why I think the issue of reducing working time is is going to be such a critical one. Uh, I've seen today the you know, momentum, the, the sort of Labour Party campaigning group originally set up to support Jeremy Corbyn's leadership has come out in, in favour of saying we want to see a, a four-day working week. We think this should be an ambition uh, for the government. I know uh, New Economics Foundation and Autonomy uh, and others have been doing a, a lot of work around this, about demonstrating the viability of it. The point of doing it is not just because we just, you know, it'd be quite nice to have a bit more free time. It actually would. And I think that's a really big, important sort of selling point where it's very clear to people. If you say you will work less, but you won't get paid less, that's a very clear, obvious thing that you're going to do for them. But it also gives you a bit of a vision about what the new society we want to build might look like. It would have to be one where there's more, there's a better functioning public sphere. We have more parks, we have more creative things happening because everybody's got another day where they can do things under their own time, under their own control. And they won't just want to sit around picking their noses away, but they want to go out and do stuff. So that gives you a vision of what a um, much more environmentally sustainable society might look like. And I think is a very, very clear, easy thing to sell to people. If we can convince them it can work, if, if we can convince them that it's economically viable, uh, and that I suspect is where the real fight will be in this. Mm, yeah, I have to say, I think situating a good environment inside, you know, having good health and, and good communities and stuff um, seems like more of a kind of rounded uh, offer for people, uh, as you say, and how are we going to pay for it? Uh, and James, um, the Inclusive Ownership Fund, this I, uh, I'm coming to afresh. So can you tell us a bit more about how that works and how that might help us achieve some of those um you know, bigger goals. Well, that that's, um, touches on something that Miata rightly uh, stresses, which is the question of ownership. I mean, if you look mm. at the, the sort of birth of neoliberalism, it, it involves this huge transfer of ownership. You take a load of things out of the public sector and you put them into, into private hands. And, and the effect of that isn't to, as, you know, Thatcher and others would, would claim, uh, create a sort of, you know, property-owning democracy or shareholder capitalism or anything like that is actually just to transfer loads and loads of society's wealth into the hands of really a very few uh, a very few people by this point. And the, the effect is is dramatic. So it's about tying, it's about getting into the question of tying the, the big transition that we're going to have to make, because we are going to have to make uh, some fairly major, very major shifts to decarbonise the economy, to reduce its impact on the environment over a period of time that's really quite short. And in doing that in a way that people are part of, because I don't think make this change without making people part of it. I think if you look at the uh, the Gilets Jaunes protests in, in France, you know, this was sparked off by an attempt to try and impose a, a fuel tax on people who had already seen their living standards you know, hammered. And then suddenly the government turns up and, and waves a finger and says, you all have to do this because of the environment. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to be how we're going to do it. So the way we're going to make it happen is if we give people ownership of the process and ownership of the assets, um, the things like the, you know, 
community ownership of wind farms being a, being an obvious one, community ownership of microhydro, uh, solar panels for you know the loads and loads of, of, of council housing and social housing through, throughout the country as, as Labour's policy now is. You give people ownership over the process, over the assets, you give them a sense that they're doing this and it's a big democratic society-wide uh, engagement and, and that's what you start to do. The inclusive ownership funds fit into that because this is the idea uh, floated um, well it's Labour policy floated by uh, John McDonnell at last year's Labour conference that Labour will expect every large company employing more than 250 people to take every year 1% of its uh, of its equity, of its shares and put them in a pot owned by all the workers in that company collectively. So over time they build up a bigger and bigger share uh, and ownership of that company and we think this will change how companies behave because we know that once you have worker ownership of companies, even if it's you know up to 10%, it starts to change how companies think about the world. They think more long term because they have to, they have that involvement and engagement of the people who work there uh, and who don't just care about profits in the next six months, they care about their job for the next few years and their community and where they live and all the rest of it. So it changes how companies think. Uh, we think that it will do something to address, as Miata was talking about, the decline in real wages because you've seen, I mean, this is quite unprecedented. 10 years real wages now are still lower than they were 10 years ago. This is uh, you know, really without precedent in modern British history. So it's all immediately putting uh, money in the form of dividends and ownership in the form of shareholdings back in the hands of the workers. And we think this is an important part of changing how major productive assets like our big companies are owned and managed in this country as part of the steps towards having a society that's, that's radically more equal, uh, radically fairer, radically more democratic than the one we have now. I think one of my um, one of my favourites um, of of the current changes that really is that really is happening on the ground um, is is the Preston model uh, where the council has actually decided to, to to change itself and that means that it can change um, its local area as well. Can you can you speak a little bit to that as well? Yeah, no, happy uh, ideas to. in action. Yes, that's exactly it. I mean, this is this is the the good thing about Preston. If people uh, people may or may not know the story by now, but, but I mean, Preston's a what sort of largest town in in the northwest near, near to where both of us are from actually just a bit further north, where the council had been faced after 2008, particularly after 2010 with austerity, faced with the same terrible prospects that, that many, many similar places were, were facing uh, across the country, that you know, the jobs had disappeared, at least good solid jobs had disappeared some time ago. They were now being hammered by austerity in Preston's case. This, this hope of a very large investment in a shopping mall in the centre of town fell through in 2011. So the council really had to try and do something different. Uh, and they fell on a set of ideas developed in America, uh, really a think tank called the Democracy Collaborative that, that's been pushing it, working with uh, Cleveland, Ohio, to get through this idea that you actually already have a large amount of wealth in the local community. It's just a lot of it kind of leaks elsewhere. So you have big employers locally, uh, but when they're buying in, um, you know, they want someone to come and fix the lights or they're buying in local services, they're, they're buying, you know, they're doing all the procurement uh, for, to keep that big um, local employer running. They, they just buy from wherever. They don't buy locally. So the first step in it was just to say to big local employers, these so-called anchor institutions, well, why don't you look at what you're spending and try and redirect some of it to, to the local economy? Um, and the effects are pretty pretty dramatic from this. I mean, PwC, who, who let's face it, I think it's fair to say are no, no great friends of, of Jeremy Corbyn or, or, or the left in general, that reckoned that Preston was the most improved town uh, in, in the whole country over the last year, because you can see the impact, and you can see the impact now in Preston, where jobs are being created because of this, where you have a council that's actually starting starting to seriously, you know, able to, to, to shift how uh, money is being spent in the town and make sure it's spent for, for the benefit of local people and local businesses. And 
Now, the next stage of this, uh, and this is where it, it starts to get into the question of ownership as well as just flows of income, uh, is that the council is now working to set up lots of sort of worker, uh, worker-owned cooperatives and, and worker-owned companies. And that this is, again, another way of getting the wealth of society and putting it back in the hands of the people who produce it and not having it all disappear into some you know big multinational and then God knows where it goes afterwards, probably some tax haven. So that's all about trying to take back the wealth uh, and put it back in the hands of people and doing so in a way that makes a much fairer, much more equal uh, and really a much more democratic society than the one we live in now. I think the thing that's really interesting is, so, you know, Preston is essentially a version of the kind of what, what people call community wealth building. And it's actually taking roots in lots of different authorities. And I think the thing that's powerful about it is it gives them agency. You know, so a lot of people are now talking about inclusive economies and they're talking about it because they're like well actually the old model where we just kind of hoped the economy would grow and our people would be better is clearly not working and hasn't worked so we need to do something far more proactively so across the country you're now seeing a lot of councils that are thinking about well what's how much are we and our partners you know our universities our schools our healthcare investing and can we invest it better so it works for our people how do we use as they did in Preston the procurement model and then the thing that's really exciting is when the local authorities are then coming together with community groups actually let's forget about all the noise that's happening out there in national politics and think about what we can do and what we can change Um, and there's huge power in it and it comes back to people having control and power to change their lives and for me that's one of the most powerful lessons from the community wealth building model. Let us imagine it is another four years in the future. God, how old will I be? 35. <laughs> um, we are here. Gosh, why wouldn't I spend my life you recording podcast? You can't see me podcast? and me out of scowling. It's <laughs> 35, I'm thinking. <laughs> We're here recording another podcast, um, as, as we all want to do every four years from now until the end of the earth. How might the world look, do you think, if we don't change the rules of capitalism? Yes, I'll go to you first. Wow. Okay, that's a big question. Um, I think if we don't, it means that we failed to grip the challenge of the environment. We failed to think about the question about what that transition looks like and how we make it work for people. On the kind of social front, it means that actually this economy that's no longer lifting people up, uh, that's no longer ensuring that, you know, my kids are going to do better than me, that still continues. It means that we probably haven't found an answer to the housing crisis. Um, And it means that wealth continues to be concentrated. So we're now, you know, we've got to our stage where we've got one in three kids that are living in poverty. So we're seeing, we'll see poverty growing, food banks growing, inequality rising, wealth inequality rising. Um, And that just feels like such a suboptimal outcome. And I just don't think the public will tolerate it. I think they've had enough. They won't change. And I think four years' time, if across the political spectrum, our leaders have not gripped the need and necessity for change and start thinking fundamentally about how we shift from the thing that we've tried and tried and tried and has failed to something else, the political consequences will be massive. The moment in which our politicians shake themselves out of Brexit and realise that they've got to deal with the big underlying issues is the moment where they will recognise that you fundamentally got to change the rules if you want to, cha- to deal with the big problems that the country faces. And James, what then do you think it, uh, the world would look like, uh, the UK would look like today, if we do manage to uh, do some of the things that Miata uh, just mentioned? 
I feel like I feel like if you spend any time on the left, it's always easier to to describe to people just how terrible things are going to be than than to try and talk about how, how oh, no. things might be better. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, if we're talking four years' time, and and we we can try and think of a plausible path and and how we get to that point. Um, put it this way: I, I take I take quite a, a sort of blunt view of what the consequences of not changing things might be. Uh, that we're trapped in, and this is chucking in a sort of economics concept. We're trapped in a, a zero sum game. That if you have a low or zero growth economy, you can't be made better off unless somebody else becomes worse off. And what climate change and stacking everything up about the economy we live in at the minute is it, it confronts us with a, a series of, uh, with a kind of zero-sum game across all of society. So politics, if we don't come up with a progressive answer uh, that works in favour of society to that zero-sum game. In other words, who is it that's going to pay for the transition? Who is it that's going to make sure that all of us, uh, outside of a, a very, very small group of people at the top, can benefit from the potential that is out there? Somebody else will turn up and provide different answers. And most likely that will be an answer that involves you know, racism against migrants, let's say, that, that it will be picking some other victim. It will be picking someone else to lose that zero-sum game. So if we want a positive outcome, uh, we'd be saying by then, look, we're going to have a much more equal society because it's going to have to be much more equal if we want uh, a transition to a sustainable, low-carbon, environmentally sustainable economy uh, over that period of time. It's going to be one in which there is a much wider spread of the ownership of the assets of that society, whether it's uh, physical assets, whether it's things like all the wind farms, solar panels, all the rest of it that we're going to have to do to decarbonise the economy, or more sort of intangible assets that people have a greater control over the data that we're all producing, that we've managed to bring these massive stacks of data and the power that they represent back under some forms of, of democratic control. And I think the work of um, city councils like Barcelona in particular has been really interesting on this, that you have a society that is more democratic in general, uh, that you have people with a sense of greater control over their own lives. So that means in their workplaces where they have a stake in owning that workplace, they have a say over what happens there. And also we have a society in which you just have more autonomy and free time, that we have a much better functioning public sphere, that people aren't working either massively over long hours which they don't want to do or not getting enough work and not getting enough money in that you have a much more even distribution of work uh, that is necessary to do but much more free time at the top of it that's the potential that we have something that looks a bit like that now once upon a time we called this socialism but that's the society that we could be getting towards over the next few years the possibility is there the danger is that, that we don't rise to that possibility and that somebody else imposes a very different uh, version of society on our heads Okay, so we've met our goals. It's four years from now, and um, we have been able to uh, change the world in the way that, that both of you have described. How do we ensure that this kind of change lasts? You know, the, the, the classic example is the NHS. So, you know, that has withstood the time because actually across 
all factions of society, there's a sense that this is a national institution that delivers something of such value that no one would dare touch. And, you know, they've tried. They've tried to dismantle it, but no one fundamentally questions it. And it's because it's got that public consent and buy-in. So the change that we're talking about, for me, can't be led and driven by, you know, a small faction of progressive people that want to drive change. You've got to take the public with you. It's got to be heart and soul. And they've got to, you know, be the ones agitating for this change and seeing how it impacts on their lives in a way that dares any politician to try to unravel it. And I think if we can get to that, that's the thing that ensures it sticks. I'd agree with that. I think the key to it is, is the buy-in and it's how you win that uh, sense of ownership. Um, that that you know, The NHS is popular. I think in part this is like a principle for everything. The, the NHS is popular because everybody can use it and it supplies something to everybody. So universalism, the idea that you're doing something for everybody, that we're all part of what's being done, uh, I think is a very, very good way to get that buy-in and to make any changes you make very, very hard to shift over time. Universalism rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Uh, that's it for this episode. Miata Fambula, thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, this afternoon. Thank you. James Meadway, call me. Thank you. Uh, you okay, hun? <laughs> Uh, anyway, if you've enjoyed this episode uh, and indeed this series, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We are at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I've been Kirsty Styles. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, and I'll be back again, you lucky things, this time next week uh, when I'll be talking to the author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism, Sophia Umoja Noble. See you then. See you then.